are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. All right, let's take our Bible. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter number one tonight. Nehemiah chapter number one. I'm excited about the next few weeks together in this great Old Testament book, the book of Nehemiah. You know, when you come to Nehemiah, you're coming to the end of the chronological order of the New Testament books. And uh, this will be the last bit of history before we get to the New Testament portion of our Bible. But we'll look at Nehemiah together the next five weeks. You're doing good. You're 100% on attendance so far. So make plans to be back again for Sunday, but next Wednesday. And don't miss one. And uh, if you're watching online, that's okay. We'll still let you come in person next week and get in on it. But let's uh, come and be together as we talk about this subject, a season to rebuild. God has been good to us to allow me to travel and see different churches and be in different meetings. And I'll be honest with you, the average church is not this. This is not the average church. And uh, this would be an exception to the norm of our hour. The average church is not on the upward swing. It's on the downward swing. It's not, uh, and so much the more, it's sort of, let's just keep this thing going another day. I don't think that God wants that. I'm convinced that God is still uh, interested in a church that would occupy until He comes, that would be pressing on toward higher ground. If you look at the history of this church, it's been that way consistently. I know for the first many years, the church has grown by 100 people every year. That's the kind of news and that's the kind of history that would entice, if we can use a, a, a fleshly term, entice a man like me to want to move out here. Honestly, to be a part of a church like this. But I don't want to just get content to say that's how it was. And I don't want to just look at pictures in a book. I'm convinced God wants to do it still yet right now. If God's going to do it, we don't need Him to send anybody else to help us get it done. We've got everything we need to get that done right now. But we've got to have a group of people that have a heart to work, a mind to work, and say, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah is a familiar book, and we're going to read the familiar first chapter of the book. We'll read the first four verses tonight, and I'll give you a thought to help us get into these five weeks, and it'll build on each other, so don't miss one. Tonight, Nehemiah chapter number one, we'll read verse number one through verse number four, and you can just remain seated. I know it's a little chilly, and like the pastor said, if you're cold out here in the open, you can move. Even while I preach, you can move, and that won't bother me if you need to get beside of a heater. Just do it, all right? Verse number one, the Bible said, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month Kislu, in the 20th years, I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and the next word I circled, it's our key word, the Bible says, and here's the word, wept. And mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. In the first three verses we find the report. But in verse number four and following we find Nehemiah's reaction to the report. If I were to ask us tonight and we were to answer out loud and I were to ask the question, 
what's the subject or the topic of the book of Nehemiah? I would say, we would quickly answer, it is the wall. Or we might even say, it's the work. And it is. Nehemiah's task, his purpose was to rebuild the wall. He did a great work. But tonight, I want us to understand that before the great work was accomplished, there was a man absolutely broken who wept over the ruins, if you will, wept over the need of his hour. For a little while tonight, I want us to think on this thought, weeping over ruins. I want to ask you the question, have you wept lately? Or maybe I'll ask you this, how long has it been since you've wept? Now, I'm not a crier. I try not to be all that emotional in that sense. Sometimes I cry easily. And I'll be honest with you, I feared that I'd preach on this message tonight having never even shed a tear as I prepared it. But this afternoon as I was going through my outline, God finally broke my heart when I considered the need of our city and our area and our state and our generation. Tonight I'm concerned with more than just shedding a single tear. I'm talking about a Jacob who'll wrestle with God or a Hannah who'll beg for a baby. I'm concerned with one who'd be like Christ, who would cry out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I fear most preachers want a preaching place, but they don't want a weeping place. Most Christians want to do a work for God, but they won't or weep rather over what grieves the heart of God. It seems like we enjoy our worship, but don't forget that weeping is the living water of genuine worship. I'm convinced weeping is what propels the working. Travail is the precedent to triumph. Sorrow is the forerunner to spiritual success. And it's mourning that's the raw material of seeing God do a miracle. We'd reject the thought tonight of a God who is unmoved over the situation. But how much it must grieve God when the reality hits that we have churches that are unmoved by the situation. I want us to think tonight about weeping over ruins. Weeping brings to my mind more than just half-hearted emotion. Weeping is more than just a tear rolling down a cheek. Weeping is more than just shaking your head or shrugging your shoulders. But to me, weeping means a brokenness over something that is equally or maybe even more so broken. Weeping is a consuming emotion. Weeping is a controlling experience. Weeping is a compulsive exercise. If you've ever wept before, you understand that weeping is very taxing. It flat wears you out. It'll wear you out physically. It'll wear you out mentally. It'll wear you out emotionally. And if you're saved, weeping will wear you out spiritually. I wonder tonight, how long has it been since we've wept? We sing the song, it's in our hymn book, Lord, let us weep again. Let America weep. But tonight, I'm not so concerned with the country. I'm concerned with the church. Now, I want to ask us the question, how long has it been since you've wept? Have you wept for a prodigal lately? Have you wept for a lost soul lately? Have you wept over dying ministries lately? Have you wept due to besetting sin lately? Have you wept because of empty bus seats lately? Have you wept because of a backslidden nation lately? Weeping is what comes out of a heart that is totally obsessed or consumed by a pressing situation. Weeping denotes a burden Weeping advertises a concern. Weeping is caused by what you see and what you hear and what you know and what you experience. Often the person who weeps is not weeping over self. 
though we surely ought to be weeping regularly over our own sin. But often weeping is done on behalf of someone or something else. Weeping are tears that are not selfish tears, but weeping tears are sympathetic tears. In Psalm 30 and verse 5, the Bible says, Weeping may endure for a night. And there's great joy in knowing that weeping is not eternal. But I'll have you know that when that night of weeping comes into your life, that'll be one of the longest nights that you ever lived through. You study the life of Jesus and find that he wept on three occasions mentioned in the Bible. He wept over an individual. He wept over a city. And he wept over sin. Probably the shortest but yet most powerful statement in the Bible are those two words where the Bible says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus was absolutely broken and moved by the situation in Bethany. It broke his heart that Mary and Martha's heart was broken. It broke his heart that Lazarus, his friend, was dead and lying in a tomb. It bothered him. It ate at him. It moved him. He loved those people. He was broken over their sorrow. Jesus wept. Let me say it again. To weep is to be broken over someone or something that is equally or maybe more so broken. Tonight I'm concerned with broken things. I'm concerned with things we could say tonight are in ruins. There's some things tonight that need to be, must be rebuilt have you ever seen anything that's been broken? Have you ever seen something that's not what it used to be or not what it ought to be or not what it could be because it's been broken? Nehemiah is living in an hour where there are some broken things that are in desperate need of being rebuilt. Now, just to be a little personal, and I don't want to sing the same song all the time, but it's true. Our church has been sort of like a ship on troubled waters for more than a year now. We've felt rocking waves and we've felt the driving winds and we've seen those white caps that seem to roll with unceasing rhythm as they approach our vessel. Our church is called to be a battleship and we're supposed to be a rescue boat caring for the perishing. But honestly, over the last year, we've had to have all hands on deck just to keep us from sinking. And let me say this, thank God for every member of our church that's been faithful through this last year. And thank God for every tither that's kept tithing over the last year. And thank God for every bus worker that didn't abandon their route over the last year. Thank God for every person that came with a shout and a smile and sat in a tent or sat in a car and didn't abandon the boat over this last year. I thank God for faithful people. But more than that, I I want to go on record and say thank God for Jesus. I'm glad tonight that our captain Jesus has shown himself faithful at the stern and he kept our ship from going under. And I'm glad tonight that we're sailing on. But even though you and I and tonight in the church we're sailing on, we're sailing through a sea that is absolutely littered with scattered and battered broken pieces of broken things. We're sailing on tonight but there's many things that have been been tossed around and driven by the torrents and almost taken under by the last several months that we've had to live through. We've weathered the storm, but other things have not weathered the storm. But can I say tonight, if that be true and the worst of this is behind us, and I think it is, I believe it is, then it's time that we lift our anchor, put our mast at full sail and sail on for the glory of God. It is time to trade out maintenance mode for give me that mountain mode. 
it is time to switch off survival mode and get back to and so much the more mode. The winds are a little bit softer. The waves are a little calmer. And even if they weren't, it is still time to get a hunger and a burden and a heart to rise up and build. It is time to lift the anchor. It is time to raise up the sail. I'm glad Sunday school is back full swing. I'm glad for the classes that have started. I'm glad more classes are continually starting and getting back. I'm glad for that. I'm glad for the many bus routes that are again canvassing our city and bringing lost people to the house of God so that they might get saved. I'm glad for that. I'm glad for the Wednesday night children's programs, all of those things. But can I say there's still more work to do. There's still more rebuilding to do. It is time. It is time. It is time to keep the waters of baptism stirred every Sunday again. It is time to hear the ignition spark and the engine rumble of those buses that are still yet to run as we go out and pick up children again. It's time to start thinking about packing out pews and having big days again. You say that doesn't go with protocol. I'm so sick with protocol. I'm more concerned about Jesus coming soon. I'm more concerned about a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. It is time. It's time to get the choir back together again. It's time to add some instruments to the orchestra. It is time. It's time. It's time to fill our pockets with gospel tracks and saturate our city with Jesus again. It's time to survey Canaan land and understand there's still yet much land to be possessed. It's not cowering season. It's not coasting season. It's not let's pray we don't sink season. It's not season to plateau. It is time to press on. I'm convinced tonight. I'm convinced tonight as we watch nature awaken from her winter sleep and we see new life resurrecting all around us that it might just please God if the church of God would follow the example of the spring and we come back to life again. It's time for Lazarus to come out of the grave. It's time for the lame man to rise up and walk. It's time for a remnant to say, let us arise and build as we consider tonight our moment in time. And as we look back at Nehemiah, I'm asking God to give us a burden for rebuilding. I'm asking God to give us a new vision a fresh hunger, a drive to do what we can while we can for the glory of God to reach our generation for Jesus Christ. The need of Nehemiah's hour is the need of ours. But I'm also glad the God of Nehemiah's day is the God of our day. It must have been an awesome sight to watch as those stones were repositioned and those boards were put back into place. Can you imagine the buzz that rebuilding must have brought to the city of Jerusalem? And with that buzz of rebuilding came a spirit of revival. Can I say those two things are inseparable? When you have rebuilding, you're going to see revival. And when you have revival, you're going to see some rebuilding. And I believe every church ought to be caught up in those things all the time. I just think that be normal Christianity, building, battling revival all the time. But can I say before a board was ever put back into place, before a stone was ever set back in position, before there ever was a great work accomplished, there was a man that was absolutely broken and weeping over the ruins. Nehemiah is a Jewish man, but he's serving a Persian king. The Bible says Nehemiah is the cupbearer. He spends his days in Shushan, the palace, and he has direct access to King Artaxerxes. Now, just a little history leading up to Nehemiah 1. The Jewish people had been taken into 70 years of captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonians fell to the Persians, 
And now the Persian Empire holds power over the people of God. King Cyrus, the king of Persia, then encouraged the captive Jews to return to Jerusalem and to re-inhabit their city. An initial wave of 50,000 Jewish people led by Zerubbabel go back and they begin to rebuild the temple. After some time, they stall. They get more concerned with their own house than they do the house of God. By the way, nothing will kill the work of God any faster than when you and I get more concerned with the things of earth than we do the things of eternity. The prophets Zechariah and Haggai began to preach and they stirred the people to revival and eventually they finished and rebuild the temple. About 60 years after that first wave of the remnant, Ezra comes and brings a second wave. Ezra is a ready scribe and Ezra, this direct descendant of Aram, goes to put the worship life, the spiritual life of Israel back in order. When the temple was rebuilt, you have to understand the center of Jewish worship was restored. That wouldn't have been an amazing day. But the Bible says, even though the temple had been rebuilt, the walls around the city laid in ruins. The Bible says the city remained a place of affliction. The city remained a place of reproach. The perimeter of that city was nothing but a surround of rubble and rubbish and decay where the walls of Jerusalem had fallen. Almost a century, almost 100 years had passed since the first Jewish uh, people had pilgrimaged back to Jerusalem and yet the walls laid in shambles around the city. The walls of Jerusalem were significant. The walls in Old Testament times were very important. Walls were the life preserver of the city. Walls are what protected the citizens. The walls that surrounded the city made the city a refuge and fortified it from its enemies. You see, the wall was a line of defense. The wall was a line of demarcation. That wall was a reflection on the state of Israel's deity. Can you Picture it in your mind, that average Jew living in the average day with that rebuilt temple. He'd go about his business. He'd walk down the streets of Jerusalem. He'd walk through the marketplace. He'd even go to the temple. But everywhere he looked, he'd be seeing the sights and signs of rubble where those walls had been leveled by invaders and they'd yet to been rebuilt. Jerusalem was their city. Jehovah was their God. But the well-being of that city reflected on the well-being of the God that they worshipped as they walked around town. They'd see ruin to the front. They'd see ruin to the back. They'd see ruin to the right. They'd see ruin uh, to the left. Yes, the temple was standing, but the walls laid in ruins. The city was in affliction. Why? Because the walls weren't rebuilt. The city was a shame. Why? Because the walls weren't rebuilt. The city was a reproach. But why? Because the walls had not been rebuilt. Every day they'd walk and see wrecked things, broken things, the ruins of what used to be. And those ruins would preach a singular crystal clear sermon to their heart. There's still some things that are broken that must be rebuilt. The walls of the city were just ruins. You say, what are ruins? Ruins are just the remains of something that's been destroyed by either battle, disaster, or neglect. Ruins are broken pieces. Ruins are the remaining fragments. Ruins are what's left behind. The Bible says the people in Jerusalem were in great affliction. 
and reproach. Now, if you go about 1,000 miles, you'll find the palace of the Persian king. There is no rubble in the palace. Ruins would be the last word used to describe what Nehemiah would have seen in that place. From every angle, his vantage point would have been that of splendor and power. The Bible tells us in our text chapter that one day during the month of Kislu, which is the end of November through December, that a group of men returned from Jerusalem, including, I believe, one of the brothers, not just a brethren, but a brother of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was serving in the palace, but I like this. Though he lived in the palace, his heart was in Jerusalem. He asked his brethren about the state of the city of God. Look at verse number two. He says at the second half of the verse, And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, I don't doubt that Nehemiah had been raised to respect Jerusalem. Nehemiah had been raised with an understanding that city is God's city. Nehemiah had heard the stories. He understood that the Jews were his people and Jehovah was his God. He understood that city was called the beautiful city. That city was like a city shining on a hill. That city was called the apple of God's eye. Maybe as a young man, Nehemiah heard about the dedication of Solomon's temple. He'd heard about the glory that used to rest upon the city. He heard about the hand of God that was evident upon that place. He'd heard about the ornate decor and all of the fine things that adorned the first temple. So Nehemiah naturally wanted to ask, how are things in Jerusalem? The report comes back in verse number three. And it's not very good news. Look at what the Bible says. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. The Bible gives the report and it mentions the negative condition of the city and the negative condition of the people and the negative testimony it reflected upon God. The Bible says that the temple was standing, but the walls are still falling. They still showed the blackened chars where they've been burned with fire. The wood was still splintered from the onslaught. The walls still laid in heaps of stone around the city. Now think about this. Nehemiah was doing fine. Nehemiah was living large. Nehemiah was comfortable in the king's house. It had been easy for him to sit on his padded pew with his King James Bible and hear about the need of the hour and say, well, I'm doing all right. I'm in the house of God. I'm saved by the grace of God. He could have done that, but he didn't. He got burdened. He got moved. He got broken. He got stirred. He got shook. He got caught up in the news report from the city. It gripped him like a wrecking ball swung into the side of a tower. Those words came crashing into the heart of Nehemiah. And the Bible says he couldn't even stand anymore. He got weak in the knees over the wreckage of those walls. He said, I can't take it. It's moving me so much. I got to find a place to sit down. And the Bible says when he sat down, he sat down and here's the key word. He wept. The walls had to be rebuilt. The work had to get done. There'd be warfare. And eventually Nehemiah would get it done. But it was all initiated from the fact that this man let the need of his hour break his heart, burn his soul and bring him to tears. He wept over the city. Can you see him? He's only heard about what it used to be. He never got to see what it used to be, but it breaks his heart that Jerusalem's a reproach. His mind must have envisioned the splintered wood. His mind must have envisioned the wailing of his people. 
His mind must have envisioned the city limits of Jerusalem marked by rot and rubble and ruin. And I like it because he's not okay with what he hears. He's not content with what he hears. He's not cold about the news of affliction and reproach. He knew it shouldn't be that way. He knew it shouldn't look like that. He knew God wanted his generation to have something better than that. And it moved him and it shook him and he wept. And the Bible says that Nehemiah, the great builder, was first the great weeper over Jerusalem. Can you hear it as the palace halls echoed with mourning? No doubt those who walked the halls of the king's house must have wondered about the sound of brokenness echoing through his chambers. You say, what is that I hear? Here. That's a man that is moved by the need of his generation. That's a man who's doing all right, but he's not content until everything else is all right. That's a man who had it made, but he wanted to do something about some broken things in his hour. Now, I love the end of our story. I love it, and we'll preach on that in the coming weeks. I'm glad Nehemiah goes. He revives the work, and the walls are rebuilt. But the genesis of that great work and the genesis I'm convinced of any great work for God is traced back to somebody who'll weep over ruins. Before Nehemiah ever stepped toward Jerusalem, before a nail was ever driven through a board, before a stone was ever put back in place, Nehemiah shed tears, he fasted, and he prayed over the need of rebuilding. I believe this is a true statement. I wrote it down earlier today. Broken things require a broken servant if they're ever going to get rebuilt. You've heard the phrase, it takes blood, sweat, and tears. But I fear the average church is content just to try to get it done with the blood and sweat. But can I say a great work for God is going to require all three. It's going to take blood, sweat, and tears. If you study your Bible, you find weeping mentioned in the very opening book of your Bible. You also find weeping mentioned in the last book of the Bible. And if you were to take your Bible and wring it out, you'd find tears falling from every book in between Genesis and Revelation. The Bible said, he that goeth forth, we like the goeth forth. But the Bible said, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed. Hagar wept. Jacob wept. Joseph wept. David wept. Ruth wept, Hannah wept, Hezekiah wept, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, Paul wept, Jesus wept. Let me restate my introduction. Weeping to me means more than half-hearted emotion. Weeping is more than just one little tear rolling down a cheek. Weeping is more than just shaking your head or shrugging your shoulders over the situation. But to me, weeping means being broken over something that it was just as or maybe even more so broken. It consumes you. It eats you up. You can't shake it. The man or woman who weeps is absolutely controlled by what they're weeping over. I wonder tonight how long has it been since you wept. I'm not emotional like that. I know some people and almost envy them. They can sit in a service and they can hear somebody sing a Song not even hit the right note one time, and yet the words of that song will so stir their heart, they'll sit there and weep. I know some people, I've gone soul winning with people across the country when I'm visiting places, and I've gone with them, and I felt like such a sorry soul winner because when they go soul winning, there's not even any cause for it, but just that burden in their heart is so heavy, 
that they weep. I'm not wired that way. I'm much more mountaintop than I am melancholy. It's just how I like it. But can I say it is right, and even more than that, it is vital every once in a while that God's people get absolutely broken over the work that they've been called to do and they weep. How long has it been since you've wept? How long has it been since you've shed tears? We're not far removed from Nehemiah. We're surrounded by broken things as well. I was driving down the road yesterday and I saw a broken piece of a wall stumble across the road. I don't know how old the man was, but obviously he's homeless and was on something. You know what that is? That's a living pile of rubble walking across the road. He needs someone to weep over him. You drive in here on Saturdays and you see the young people coming in from all over San Jose and surrounding areas. You know what that is? That's the raw material of a great Christian. But it's broken things that somebody has to get a burden over and weep and pray. Sunday school teachers that prepare their lessons and teach their class and never once pray through their attendance sheet. Today I spent some time emailing folks that we haven't seen since this thing started. And it's so convicting because I haven't spent a whole lot of time like I ought to in prayer for those people. But can I say it ought to move us that we don't see faces we used to see in our seats. It ought to move us that we don't see people that we used to see in our pews. When's the last time you wept over the fact whenever we had a church service and there was nobody to walk an aisle and get saved, but that's because nobody went out there on Saturday and lined up anybody to walk an aisle? It ought to bother us. I'm not preaching at you. I'm just preaching to us. When's the last time we wept over the fact that we're not baptizing more than one person every Sunday or more than two people or maybe Sunday sometimes we don't even baptize any? There's got to be one church in this generation that still gets it done for the glory of God. Lord, let us weep again. Let America weep. And we kind of cast off the burden on America. But God's not concerned with our country. He's concerned with our church. There's an innumerable crowd of churches that want to be the popular church. They want to be the program-run church. They want to be the flashy church or they want to be the fashionable church. But where's our weeping church? We have the truth, but where's our weeping? We have an understanding of Scripture, but where's our weeping? We have ministries abundance of those but where's the weeping we have the greatest facilities but where's our weeping we might even have a zeal and an amen and a fervor and faith in God but where is our weeping D.L. Moody gave the testimony he said as he talked about his conversion he's talking about Edward Kimball he said this is a very strange thing he said here's a man who never saw me until lately he thought as a young boy but he's weeping over my sins I now understand and know what it is to weep over men's sins. He went on to say as he testified, I don't remember what he said, but I can still see his tears and feel his hand on my shoulder. Page 588 in our hymn book is that song I've referenced. One of the last, the last verse, I believe, says, Dear people, we need to weep and pray for our land. But we could add words there and say we've got to pray for our children. We've got to weep and pray for sinners. There's so many things. For only a broken heart will break the bands. But what will we have to do, or he have to do to break our hearts and cause us to weep again, revival to start? Now, easily we could come tonight and preach on the walls getting erected, rebuilt. But before a wall was ever raised, Nehemiah got low and wept. If we don't get a burden and we don't get broken, we probably won't do much. But if we could get a handful of Christians that are absolutely concerned and burdened and broken and will weep over the need of our hour, 
I think God can do great things. I just don't want to get content is all. I just don't want to get satisfied is all. The average church will report to you, we're down 25% in attendance. That's fine if that's the average, but that won't be the average. The average church will say, well, you know, we just we have a lot of empty spots and we've had to quit this ministry and we're kind of condensing. I think, I think it'd probably be a good time to start something, not quit something. Just try to make something up. That's what we're doing on Sunday night. Just try to start some things. Well, maybe we ought to combine this. Let's not combine. Let's divide something and grow on for God. The need hasn't lessened. If anything else, the need is heightened. And Jesus is coming soon. Yes, we live in a reprobate, wicked, prodigal area. We understand that. But what a great place to shine a light for God. But we need more than cold and callous, content, and even critical Christians. We're going to have to shed some tears and weep over the condition of our country and the condition of our area. I want to ask you again, how long has it been since you've wept? Or let me ask you like this, have you wept lately? Have you young people wept lately over your generation? Have you in the college wept lately over the fact that there are churches that you're going to go serve one day? You ought to already have a burden. You may say, I don't even know where that is. You ought to already have a burden for wherever it is God wants you to go. Church folks, how long has it been since we've wept? I'm going to pray. We'll have an invitation. It's just the first four verses. Nehemiah gets a report. He reacts to it. We get the report every day on our news feed, on our timeline, on the radio, from people we be past. But what's our reaction to the report? Is it just shaking our head? Or does it cause us to weep? Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.